Our New Testament reading is from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? O oh, living God, we pray that you would um, invade, invade and overcome our walls and our darkness. We pray that you would um, come and be our light, be our hope, be our strength come to us now. You've been here the entire service for those that are seeking you for the first time, for those that feel distant, for those that wonder how they're going to just get through this week. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. So, we have, we say at Grace Downtown, a goal. A goal. And our goal is to be Inwardly growing, outwardly serving. That's good. That's good. I mean, because you didn't know really where I was going, and you might have thought, well, Glenn's liable to forget the goal himself and make up a new one on the spot. And we try to unfold that, unpack that in three different ways. One is spiritual practice. The other is living in place. We call theology of place. And the other is this idea of family of God. And we rotate those themes every year, and this year we're kicking off this idea of family of God. And so it took me back to a conversation that I had a couple months ago with one of our neighbors. He invited Meg and I over to uh, just sort of like an afternoon cocktail hour with some of their friends. We knew just maybe two people there. And I got into a conversation with a young man, originally from Japan, studied here, uh, 30 years old. 
And immediately, you know, we're just sort of clicking. You know, we, were, we went just a significant conversation really quickly. And, um, and at some point, I said, yeah, you know, I'm a, a pastor. And that's normally when the conversation just ends. Uh, you know, but he actually was brave enough. He said, really? Tell me more. Tell me about church. And he then said, um, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I find among my friendship groups, if there's one thing that makes us curious and intrigued and maybe even drawn to the church is this hunger we have for a real community, like authentic, committed community. And that's the thing that, you know, keeps kind of make, makes me consider. He had a, a college stint where he considered it, and I can tell he's still considering it. And uh, what I... Um, what I heard was him saying, um, I desire a sense of family, right? A sense of community. Now, I know, you know, family's a loaded word, right, for us. For some of us, the idea of family of God just triggers, like, my broken family. And, uh, or just a creepy cult, right? Um, but when you look at the New Testament, that's not what you see. You see uh, this idea of wholeness, in transparency, and self-giving, and we'll have a chance to go through that, where commitment is in casual and it's not coerced, um, but it's there. It's really there. And the culture of the family doesn't mirror the divisions and the suspicions of the world, right? The old divisions that just keep rearing their head over and over again in every generation. And uh, in the book of Acts, one of the things that was so striking to the surrounding culture was how they made sense of this group of people together that didn't belong together, right? Jew, Gentile, widow, orphan, married, single, rich, poor, religious, pagan, zealots, imperialists, all these people together making a, trying to make a go of it. You know, devoted, sacrificing, broken, broken, but something that was there. And while the book of Acts, I think in our minds, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, Acts is the part of the Bible that records the expansion of the Christian church, the spread of the Christian church. But, you know, it's not just expansion of the church, it's actually the formation of of one new people. It's the formation of a new humanity, a new kind of people that God is making. And so the quest of the church is actually bound to the character of the church. The quest and the character, and Jesus said this, he said, the world will know that I'm real and I came by your love for one another. The character and the love will actually be on the move, and that will be the quest. The relationship is the quest, which, you know, we, we normally don't think about mission that way, do we? We think about achievement and getting things done. But it's a tall order. 
I mean, you know, we have only needed to be reminded how vulnerable and fragile the church is. It was hard for me in that conversation, in one sense, to explain, like, the state of the church right now. Because on one hand, I knew he was attracted to the idea. On the other hand, I was like, well, actually, you know, he had questions, too, about, like, what about this? It's like, yeah. Things don't look very great right now, do they? Very appealing. But it's a tall order in any age. And so Jesus starts things off by basically saying to them, you must understand the success of this is entirely dependent on me. The success of you being that community is entirely dependent on me. And that ought to give us some hope. That ought to actually give us some hope today. You know, Acts is the second volume of Luke's two-volume work. In fact, if Luke, Duke writes stuff too, but Luke, <laughs> I, I confuse those two all together because Duke's writing so inspired as well. No. Yeah, don't let him hear that. It'll go to his head. Anyway, um, but when, if Luke would have put out the volume, his volume would have started with Luke 1 and ended with Acts 28. You know, that's how he was thinking. And he actually says, now in the first part, what I did was I talked to you about Jesus' ministry while he was on earth. And now I'm going to keep talking about his ministry. But now the ministry he's exercised from heaven. And he actually says, it's not just a change in location. It should be a change in expectation. But that ministry, that second ministry of him orchestrating it from his throne, even greater things will happen. And they have happened. As much as the church spread in those early generations, you can't even compare what's happened in the last over 2,000 years. I mean, the stories, right? The life change. Even in this room, even in this city, we could collect all the churches in Washington, D.C. We would be amazed at all that Jesus does, continues to do. But if that work of the formation is going to happen, he has to shift our confidence. He had to shift their confidence from themselves onto him. He had to build it differently. And so he puts them through 40 days of an immersion course. 40 days. And the purpose of it is ultimately for them to see this whole project is dependent. I'm calling you to be one new people, and it is dependent upon me. That's where he starts. That's where we have to start. As we think about what it means to be the family of God. And so two things he does in those 40 days, instruction and conviction. He gives them instruction and builds their conviction. So let's look at those. So this past week, um, I was having problems with my iPhone. And it's, you know, it's a brand new phone. And it was um, like the button was stuck. It wasn't working. And it would kind of work. It wouldn't work. And then the other one wasn't working. So I don't know about you. It's, it's, it's amazing how like a broken phone can send you into panic. You know, as if, as if like, the, the world's not going to be okay. You know, immediately I was like, i got to get into an Apple store. Like, immediately, you know. And I, thankfully, there was a, God uh, showed mercy in my anxiety, and I found one. Um, 
and uh, went there, and, and uh, so the guy looked at the phone, and he, the first thing you're always afraid of is, the, the big thing you're going to hear is, it's your fault, right? This is your fault, like, oh, man, I'm not, so I was hoping it wasn't my fault. And then, um, so he went, not like that, and then he said, well, usually what this happens is we take it back there, and, you know, we're going to have to pull off the back, actually keep it. It's probably a logic board. He starts saying all this stuff, and I'm just like, it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, I was just thinking, it, it, no. Like it, and then he, he was just about, he was, oh, wait a second. Like there's, there's a little something underneath that button. He pulled out his tools. I, you know, he had them hidden. And he just kind of went to work. And aha, that was it. And he said, well, you know, you can't just, and I'm giving you this advice for free. Um, <laughs> You've heard what I had to go through to get it. Now, you see, I got one of these cases. I've always thought, well, it's in the case. I don't need to worry about it. He said, no, you've got to pull it out of the case and clean the inside of the case because debris gets in there and get in your phone. Maybe that's why you came. Right. Some of you were like, that was the best part of the sermon, something practical. I really need to move on here, right? Okay. But the point is, okay, all of us have had these, you know, maybe it's, like, you know, you trying to work out a math problem or some skill you've been trying to acquire. Techno we all have these moments where uh, the lights go on, right? Aha moments. And something results from that. When the lights go on, your confidence builds, right? There's a relationship between instruction and confidence. And so Jesus starts with instruction, and what I want us to notice, first of all, is the timing. Before Jesus ever sends the power, he first sends the instruction. Okay? Like, maybe some of you have rented tools before you go to a hardware store, and if they're doing a good job, when you rent the tool, the first thing they say to you is, and you know how to work this, don't you? <laughs> right, because once you turn the power on, it's too late if you don't know how to work it. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt somebody else. The disciples cannot use that power yet. He has to spend 40 days in instruction with them, detailed instruction. And it reminds us, too, that the Bible never pits truth and power against one another. You know, the church will sometimes do this. We, we need more power, experience. We need more truth. The Bible never does that. Uh, Jesus actually says, uh, what, what we find is the Holy Spirit is taking of Jesus and enlightening, but we're going to unpack that. The two areas of instruction that we see here is he instructs them about the nature of the Word of God and the Kingdom of God. Okay, First of all, the Word of God. Jesus said, not too, not too much earlier before he was crucified and raised, the Spirit of Truth, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the power the third person of the Christian Godhead, the Christian Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth will glorify me by taking mine and making it known to you. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit, or I'll say it this way, the way that you know that you understand the Bible is because Jesus becomes more magnified and beautified. He said, I, the, the Spirit will take from me and I will be glorified. So it's not just like Bible knowledge. 
or theology. You know that you're understanding the Bible when the Holy Spirit shines a light and Jesus becomes greater and more beautiful and more powerful and nearer and closer when he shines. And there's an example of this in Luke 24, right? Jesus is raised from the dead. He meets these two disciples, and he does a Bible study. He starts with the Hebrew Scriptures at the beginning, walks them all the way through, and says, I'm the fulfillment of all of this. That's an example of what the Holy Spirit, and it says their hearts burned. You know, there's two things about, like, if you're trying to read the Bible, two things that must happen if your hearts are going to burn. One is it must do... It's work of exposing us. It's work of light. And I don't mean just like our failures to love. That's a big part of it. Like every passage does one or two things. Every passage will highlight a human need like loneliness, fear, anxiety, just living in a broken world. Or it will highlight sin. Our failure to love, the, the dark side of what we do, it highlights that every time So you read, that should be, you you ought to see that, but if that's where you stop, your heart won't burn. Your Your heart will die. Because the Spirit doesn't just bring light, He brings warmth. The warmth of God's grace, His love. Every passage then points to God's grace being fulfilled. It's in the Word of God, Jesus comes to you clothed in His Word. He is called the Word. So the elders took this retreat, and uh, the week beforehand, weekend beforehand, the Women's Leadership Council did a retreat. And um, I said to my guys there, I said, we always need to follow them. One, they left like a bunch of great food. But more so, more so, we walk in, and on the table is a stack of letters, one for each of us. And it was so interesting to watch every person walk at different times. They walked in, they went, wow. You know, the, the presence of our sisters and fellow leaders there in that word. Or maybe I can put it this way. Um, you, you know, you, you've been to a wedding or rehearsal dinner, and at some point someone who's part of the crew stands up, and they, maybe they read something. They read a testimony of affection. You've got the person present, but you also have the word. This is what God does mysteriously when we open ourselves up to the word of God. As the word instructs you, our high priest who groaned and wept his way through this world comes to you and says, I understand. I'm listening to you. The prophet comes and shines that light that I just talked about. The king comes who declares the good news of the kingdom, the good news that our sin can be condemned and judged and we don't have to be with it because he had been sacrificed in our place. And the, and the good news of freedom from bondage, from sin. He comes to you in his word. So in the word of God, as the spirit instructs us, we find this transcendent, mysterious God who's full of wonder and leads you to fall and worship. People get that a bit as they look at, you know, the new photographs from space in the world, this idea of wonder and mystery, but it's not depersonal. Why? It's, it's, it's personal. 
The wonder of the, or the, the earth only means something when you realize it's a gift from somebody. It's not just a beautiful happenstance. We see the transcendent God. We see the near God. You look into your father's face, and before you saw a judge, you see a father. You discover a friend. You discover an elder brother, a king, a family. This is what he does is he instructs us. You discover that there really is forgiveness, and there really is unconditional love. At the end of Luke's first volume, and this is sort of his version of what's called the Great Commission, listen to what he says. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, instructed them. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the part, you are witnesses of this. This is what he says to the apostles. And when he says, you are witnesses of this, he's not just talking about the facts. He's saying, you've tasted this. Someone who demonstrates it so beautifully is the Apostle Paul. His witness constantly is laced with his testimony. He can't, he'll talk about the witness of God, and then he immediately says something like, and God's grace overflowed to me. We're only witnesses of the good news if it's good news to us, right? Like that, that, it's not a whole, you know, it's just a message otherwise. It's just like this idea of, in fact, it'll really become dangerous. I'm, I'm trying to import some like, you know, moral order on the world or some twisted political vision or whatever it is. It's not good news. To be credible witnesses, it needs to be that but also instructions of the kingdom of God. Now, by the disciples' questions, when they say the question about, are you going to restore the kingdom? You know, one of the first questions they ask Jesus is a political question. Not much different than us in the church today. Now, they, they had a, a history, right, in the prophets about this, so they were expecting that when the Messiah came back, there would be, a physical reigning of the Messiah on earth. And Jesus believes that. That's in the future. But what Jesus is talking about here is not, it, the nature of the kingdom is not fundamentally a political, cultural thing. He, he still has to drill that into their minds. It's such a shift, and it's such a shift. I, I mean, this is part of the problem and of the vision in the church, right? It keeps just happening over and over whether it's on the right or the left. Christians constantly going, I need to see this kingdom manifest now in the way that I need to see it. I don't know if any of you caught Michael Gerson's op-ed on Friday in the Washington Post. I, I would recommend reading it. I, I think it's profound. I think it's profound. And in it, he's talking about the kingdom. And he says, Jesus rejected the role of a political Messiah. He insisted that the kingdom of God would not be the product of nationalism, Jewish nationalism. It would not arrive through militancy and violence, tactics that would contribute only to a cycle of suffering. Instead, God's kingdom would grow silently, soul by soul, among you, across every barrier of nation or race, in acts of justice, peacemaking, love, inclusion, meekness, humility, and gentleness. 
That's the kingdom that Jesus is executing. It's the rule and reign of the kingdom in the hearts of people, which then begins to influence its culture around it. But it's not just the nature, it's the scope. Jesus is having to shift their vision from the kingship of thrones to being servants bringing light to the world. You know, John and James, the, thunders, uh, the sons of thunder, are the ones that say to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we like be on either side? You know, you're going to have this big throne. People are going to walk in and I'll be there and he'll be there. They're still thinking that way. And he's recapturing Isaiah saying, no, your job is actually to go off into the world as servants of light. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The calling will be to leave their comfort zone, their, their Jerusalem, their Judea, into Samaria to the ends of the earth. And in fact, because they're kind of reluctant to do that, one of the means that God will use in the book of Acts is the whip of persecution. They're really kind of not moving fast enough. Persecution breaks out and there goes the gospel. We shouldn't underestimate how God can use persecution. But what I want to say, my friends, is I hope you see that when we talk about a fundamental mission of our family of God is to be a cross-cultural or intracultural church, it's not succumbing to the winds of the world. And it's not just sort of like majoring on this little thing that seems interesting. It is part of the fundamental mission and identity of what the church is. This is the family of God. If the church is not growing in that identity and spreading out, it's failing. It's not imaging the family of God. So, but for that, they're going to need conviction. I'm going to do this faster. So I was reading an old interview um, way back in 2006. Wow, what a different world it was. And it was a PBS Frontline interviewing Bono, you know, the singer of U2. And they asked him how he feels about aligning himself with conservative Christians back then. And uh, his answer, he answers with uh, a thought about conviction. And he says, yeah, convictions in the end, they can be dangerous, but a world without them is just kind of an awful gray. I think apathy offends me way more than kind of fervent re religiosity. Right? I mean... The word extremist always has to be qualified, right? What if you're an extremist in serving people? Good extremist, right? Of caring about justice, right? This idea that God has called us to have conviction. There's no sports team, there's no anybody where success didn't happen because of conviction. You got to have it, right? And so... Jesus understands what this thing's going to cost them more than they even realize. In fact, all but one will be martyred. He knows where it's headed. He knows the persecution and the opposition, so he knows the conviction they're going to have to have. And so over that 40 days, he just doesn't instruct them. It says he appeared to them with many proofs. Many proofs. 40 days. I mean... Sometimes, you know, we, we beat ourselves up. Well, let me, we beat ourselves up about doubt. Maybe you do that. Listen, think about it. The disciples 
This is 40 days of Jesus eating, meeting, them touching and being with. And imagine one day, you know, he does it for five days in a row, and then he walks in and goes, hi, guys. And they're like, I'm not so sure about you. you know. Day 12. Hey, this is great. Day 14. Are you, like, real? Is this just in a... Many proofs, many proofs he spends because he knows conviction can be weak for us. This idea that the early church were these gullible, primitive guys that just immediately went, yeah, Jesus is raised. Obviously not. They needed a lot of convincing. First of all, in the mind, in the Jewish theology, there was only a resurrection at the end, and it was everybody, not one person. And while they honored martyrs, no martyr had come back from the dead. And after all, Jesus' death was considered a curse from God. Like the public execution was, God has cursed you and judged you. And so part of what he's having to convince them is, listen, actually, death is a sign that you've been cursed and judged. Resurrection is a sign that you have life. You're sinless. I defeated death because I was sinless. And in you, and in me, you will be sinless before the Father, and you will defeat death. So there was some considering they had to do. Now, the Apostle Paul will say in one of his letters, at the time of the New Testament writing, he could actually point and say, if you don't believe this whole thing about the resurrection, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, and a lot of them are still living. So you can go, you can just go talk to them. You know, they weren't afraid to just put it out there. But there's no doubt that the apostles, these 11 and then 12, were given a massive, immediate, powerful testimony experience of his resurrection. And not only his resurrection, his ascension. Now, you know, in this text, it's interesting, um, it almost goes into slow motion. Things are moving along, and then we get this. And whenever the Bible goes into slow motion, it's saying it's trying to get your attention. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Significant, this happens on the Mount of Olives where Jesus' triumphal entry began. So, right, this is this idea of the king triumphing. But what they do is God wants them to see that the resurrected Jesus is ascending to his rightful throne. And now he will be commander-in-chief and executive agent orchestrating the ministry on the earth. And he will do it by his spirit through us, the church. It's amazing. And then, you know, there's a lot we can get from that. I mean, think about your anxiety and, you, and, you, and your worry. I mean, I think about my own. The throne is occupied. Unless we're going to say, you, you didn't ascend. Are we like slow motion going, you ascended, you're reigning, you're ruling, no matter how freaked out the world gets, no matter how bad it gets, whether we get more runs of pandemics, whether war invades our world, you are reigning God. The longer life we have, we see that. But there's another thing it is, and this is the main thing I want us to see, there is a shift now from faith in the physical Jesus to the testimony in the word of Jesus.
Jesus. That's what happened. Right? As he raises up, now the basis of faith is not them seeing, it's the testimony in the word. And why is that important? One, again, because they're going to get persecuted. But two, more importantly, that is the means by which the entire world will come to know Jesus. There's a ton riding on it. Why does he give them all those proofs and witness and they see that? Because it is through their writing, the apostles' oversight of the writing of the Bible. Some of them actually wrote it. Some of them oversaw who wrote it. It's through that testimony of the Bible that the word and message will get out through history as it has. Even way into 2022 and to cynical Washington, D.C. Still people coming to hear the word. But what it means is our conviction grows based on that word. You know, I, we, we all kind of long in our loneliness, our struggle, like, God, do something. You know, we're looking for our conviction to be built in other ways. Like, answer this prayer this way. Or do something remarkable. You know, do something that, when we're told that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the reason, the way your conviction is going to grow is if you make space for Jesus to visit you through his word. And I want to ask you, like, are you available? Are you available? I mean, maybe, you know, we ought to take the next 40 days and say, I'm going to make myself available. You know, are, are you uh, growing on purpose? We do a lot of things on purpose, but are in your mind, if you're wanting greater conviction of what you know to be true, this is how the Spirit will do it. The testimony of what was seen. So, um, this then leads to a new sort of people and a new sort of kingdom. I want to close by a quote that Gerson says in this article. He refers to the kingdom as a new and noble manner of living, seeking social influence not by joining interest groups that fight for their narrow rights, and certainly not those animated by hatred, fear, phobias, vengeance, or violence. Rather, seeking to be ambassadors of a kingdom of hope, mercy, justice, and grace. This is a high calling and a test that most of us, myself included, are always finding new ways to fail at. But it is the revolutionary ideal set by Jesus of Nazareth who still speaks across the sea of years. Still speaking. We are being called to be one new people. And God is doing that work. But before we launch off whatever missions we think we have, he's already said to us, I need you to sit, and I need you to be enlightened, and I need you to be emboldened by who I am and what I've done in the testimony of millions and millions and millions of my followers. Let's pray.